we are back. We were talking about the climate uh, change uh, in the first segment a little bit. I do want to note that people are scratching their head a bit over the fact that um, forecasters predicted this would be a very active Atlantic hurricane season. They thought there might be as many as 11 hurricanes this summer and fall, including up to six, they thought, with winds stronger than 110 miles an hour. But so far, we're well into the second half of the season, and there have been only two minor hurricanes, neither of which made landfall. Well, hello. Long-range weather predictions are, you know, not very good. But as to whether we're going to see climate change in the wake of startling, startling surges in temperatures over the past 20 years, well, you know, I think that's just a lot of wishful thinking. There does seem to be a correlation between atmospheric CO2 and temperature going back a long, long time. We'll be definitely talking about that in the future. But down under in Australia... Well, it's bad news for people that want to do something about climate change. Now, Australia had taken the uh, forward-looking step of instituting a carbon tax, but um, Australia's landslide election results seem to be bad news for the climate. The new conservative government, headed by Prime Minister-elect Tony Abbott, says it will axe the country's carbon tax, disband a climate advisory body, and institute a carbon reduction policy that climate scientists say will fail to meet even its meager targets. It will also scale back plans for a national broadcasting network and direct funds away from research it deems, quote, ridiculous, unquote. Yes, the coalition government down under has signaled that it would disband Australia's Climate Commission, which is an independent scientific body that provides reliable information on climate change to the public. Tony Abbott's been outspoken in climate issues. In 2009, he said when talking about climate change that, quote, the science is highly contentious, to say the least, and the climate change argument is absolute crap. We're going to have to hear from Pamela Taylor down in Queensland uh, for some commentary on what's going on. And, you know, it's hard to do, but every so often we can't resist trying to translate This Modern World by Tom Tomorrow into radio. Because generally in six panels, he seems to summarize things going on as well or better than the editorial pages of our major newspapers. So let me get, take a stab at this one. First panel, a political crisis unfolds. One woman, Tea Party Republicans with funding from the Koch brothers have secretly constructed an army of giant killer robots. Man in the panel, sources say the robots will be unleashed on a defenseless populace unless Obamacare is repealed. Second panel, Tea Partiers are unapologetic. Ted Cruz pipes up, we lost in the election, we lost in the courts. What other choice do we have except to build an army of giant killer robots? To which Michelle Bachman pipes up, this is still a democracy, isn't it? Third panel, caught between Democrats and his own party's hardliners, Speaker Boehner calls for compromise. Boehner, if the president compromises by defunding his signature legislation, achievement, Republicans will compromise by not unleashing giant killer robots. Fourth panel, the pundits weigh in. Pundit one, Republicans built the killer robots, but Democrats are refusing to capitulate. So aren't both parties equally to blame? Second pundit, it's just more the same old partisan gridlock. Fifth panel, ordinary Americans struggle to understand the complexities of the legislative process. Woman, so when a small fraction can't get exactly what it wants, the next step is to instigate widespread chaos? Her male companions. Well, duh. <laughs> Have you even read the Constitution? Final panel. And then, 
notes Ted Cruz, I think the American people are really going to rally behind us. In the background, there's giant robots grabbing people going, kill, kill. Adding, and anyway, Obama made us do it. Tom Tomorrow, a national treasure, and I'm, I don't think he's that far off. And I'm trying to make my way into some, uh, some science items here, but there's a little bit more politics I think we need to sort of wade through. And this, I think I will go to uh, the News and Review, column by Nick Miller, <laughs> titled, Shaq's Got Your Back? Question mark. Subheadline, needing the governor to sign a sweetheart arena bill, King's owner Vivek Randive rolls out Sacramento's least favorite seven-footer. To quote from the piece, Shaquille O'Neal's not just the latest whale in the Sacramento Kings ownership aquarium. The NBA legend was in town this past Monday, whining, dining, and lobbying Governor Jerry Brown. What might normally be considered harmless elbow rubbing became contentious. The governor is mulling whether to ink a special Kings bill that would fast-track construction of the team's new downtown arena. Piece goes on to note that uh, Shaquille O'Neal, along with the owner and co-owner Mark Mastrov, sat down at Zocalo with uh, Governor Jerry Brown and uh, First Lady Anne Gust, along with King Center DeMarcus Cousins. It was noted that at the end of the night, a photo of Shaquille O'Neal bench-pressing Brown's wife above his head was making the rounds on Twitter. Nick Miller goes on to note how uh, Senate President Pro Tem Daryl Steinberg has a bill that was going to speed up the judicial review of any challenges to the arena's environmental impact report. Noting that if some group files a suit against the certification of the environmental impact report, both the superior and appeals courts would have only 270 days to resolve any legal challenges, a significant fast track. Equally importantly, he notes, the bill provides injunctive relief for the arena construction, which means that unless there's a serious risk to public health or American Indian artifacts, work on the arena will not be interrupted by any environmental suits or challenges. Nick Miller further notes the timeline's important. A signature gathering effort to put an initiative on the June 2014 ballot challenging the arena's public subsidy will probably succeed. Radio Parallax believes that if that challenge gets on the ballot, it's going to win. Even more horrifying, this special King's Bill also permits the city of Sacramento to engage eminent domain proceedings against the owners of the downtown plaza's Macy's property. Now, I don't know how Shaquille O'Neal holding Ann Gust over his head fits into all this. We're not sure, but, you know, research is going to have to continue. Much more horrifyingly, we have to note the Sacramento Bee's op-ed piece by Barbara O'Connor and Steve Ayers titled, Building the Case for a Strong Mayor. The piece by Barbara O'Connor, described as co-chair of Sacramento Tomorrow and emeritus professor of communications and director of the Institute for Study of Politics and Media at Sacramento State, was joined by Steve Ayers, her fellow co-chair of Sacramento Tomorrow, described as the CEO of Armor Steel. It's really a remarkable editorial. The article describes how Sacramento Tomorrow, in the guise of the two editorial writers, have apparently sat down with everybody who matters and talked to them about what's going down in Sacramento. To quote from this remarkable piece, we have been hard at work for the past four months, wow, four whole months, taking full advantage of the prior knowledge that people possess. We have met with many neighborhood associations and continue to do so, have contacted nearly every labor organization and business group in town, and conducted a telephone town hall with 2,600 Sacramento voters asking questions and discussing the issues. And they note, and here's what we've heard in the main. Now, this is point number one out of 10. 
Sacramento residents are excited about the King's decision to stay in town and recognize enormous opportunities can come to our city as a result. Point two, everyone deserves the benefit of that decision, including workers, neighborhoods, businesses throughout the city, people wanting improved public services, even people who don't follow basketball. Point three, a city on the verge of such an opportunity must have leaders equal to the task and a mayor who can set a vision, work in partnership with the council, and represent Sacramento with authority to those who demand decisions. Now, you know, nowhere in this whole piece does it mention, wouldn't it be nice if the voters got to vote on the public subsidy? That, that just doesn't even enter the discussion. No, apparently Sacramento tomorrow wants to get a strong man in the mayor's position. Apparently Sacramento tomorrow wants to put a strong man in the mayor's chair so that, doggone it, things can get done around here. Well, that's certainly one political philosophy one can adopt. Uh, we're looking forward to their further editorials on the Austrian Anschluss and the question of what to do with the Sudetenland. But I, I love these guys. Here's how they close the piece. Sacramento tomorrow has held a discussion with the community about the future. How do we meet it fully equipped to take rightful advantage? How do the neighborhoods benefit from the growth? How do the jobs get created? How do businesses come out of the recession and blaze into the economic growth just around the corner? In other words, how do we face head-on what could be the most dynamic period of economic development in the city's history? Having a mayor empowered to lead and asking the best possible people to step up to the plate to offer to serve is one-way voters ought to be asked to meet the future. Yes, by all means, let's get the best possible people up there to direct this train. Let's talk about science and medicine. Let's start with medicine. It's um, not often I get to open up the pages of my favorite science magazine, New Scientist, and see someone who we've had on this program, someone who instructed me in the past, but uh, that was my pleasure in the September 28th issue of New Scientist when, in their opinion-slash-interview piece, they talked with Garen Wintemute right here at UC Davis. Noted the magazine. Emergency room doctor Garen Wintemute is one of a handful of U.S. researchers brave enough to tackle the problem of gun violence. He tells Tiffany O'Callaghan why it's so hard to make inroads. To quote from the interview, Tiffany, how bad is gun violence in the U.S.? Dr. Wintemute, it takes upwards of 30,000 lives a year and injures another 75,000. We spend $100 billion a year on this problem, including the criminal justice system's efforts to prevent and punish. Tiffany, why is it so, Tiffany, why is it so difficult to tackle? Dr. Wintemute, federal funding for research is less than $200,000 a year. In contrast, public health research on motor vehicle accidents, which also claim 30,000 lives a year, receives close to $4 million. So the data that might be used to identify patterns is simply not there. Tiffany, why is there so little money to research it? Dr. Wintemute, this has not happened by accident. There was a conscious, deliberate, and successful effort to prevent funding from being available. It began in the mid-1990s and continues today. Tiffany, after recent mass shootings, hasn't funding for gun violence research received more attention? Dr. Wintemute, there's a proposal in Congress to allow for $10 million in research funding, but I suspect it essentially has no chance of making it. Even if it did, our Department of Health and Human Services prohibits any of the funds from being used, and I'm quoting directly here, quote, to advocate or promote gun control, unquote. That means even if I had the money to do the research, it would be a crime to talk about the policy implications. Peace goes on to talk about various questions about gun control. I recommend you, uh, you check it out, dear listener. Dr. Wintemute has been a lonely voice calling out for some sanity in this area. 
noted the magazine editorially, It seems the failure to enact any legislation after the shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School has emasculated the gun control lobby. If the massacre of 20 young children can't shift the argument, nothing will. As the Washington Post concluded, the issue for the foreseeable future is settled. Gun control is dead. Anyway, it seems clear enough we need to know more about what's going on. The interview with Dr. Wintermute concluded with the following two exchanges. Why have you dedicated yourself to studying gun violence as a public health problem? Initially, I worked more broadly on injury prevention, but over time I came to realize that firearm violence was unique and that it was a very large problem on which few people were working. A lot of us have realized that, as clinicians, the way to reduce the number of people who die from gun violence is to prevent them from being shot in the first place. Final question, what's it like to treat a person who's been shot? The vast majority of people who die from gun violence never get to the emergency room, but those who do are typically in a great deal of pain and very afraid. In the realm of medicine, I think it's also worth taking a look at the Sacramento News Review's excellent piece by Melinda Welsh, cover story titled Doctor's Secret. Subheadline, physicians regularly prescribe chemotherapy, ventilators, CPR, and surgeries for the dying. So, why do they say no to such procedures for themselves? It's a piece I recommend you, uh, you read and fold there, listener, just to excerpt a bit. Melinda Welsh asks, what do doctors know the rest of us don't? Said that according to... Dr. Ken Murray, who wrote an essay for the web-only magazine Zocalo Public Square, physicians have seen the limitations of modern medicine up close, and I know that attempts to prolong life can often lead to protracted, heartbreaking death. There's some pretty good data cited from the Johns Hopkins Precursor Study, which is one of the longest longitudinal inquiries into aging in the world. It contains a running medical record of health statistics on a group of about 750 doctors who remembers the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore between 1948 and 1964. She quotes Dr. Joseph Gala, who's director of the precursor study, is saying that um, it seems the more familiar you are with interventions, the less you want. Good piece. I suggest you check it out, dear listener. All right, three other medical items. Apparently, someone in the United States has gotten really concerned about the dangers of Tylenol. Recently, the nonprofit news organization ProPublica revealed that acetaminophen is the country's leading cause of acute liver failure. I think this explains why it is that all of your pain medications are about to be reformulated so that nothing has more than, I think, like 300 milligrams of Tylenol in a pill. I must say, I am a little bit skeptical of this. Tylenol is a significant problem if taken in overdose. In fact, the news reporting on this noted that it It really is a pretty safe medicine at the recommended doses. But if you exceed those doses over time, even by as little as two extra-strength Tylenol tablets a day, you can get into trouble. Well, yes, if you cross the street at the wrong time, you will get into more trouble. So I guess these folks' solution would be restrict access to the street. All right, we mentioned this program a while back that Mexico has recently overtaken the U.S. as the world's fattest nation. And I'm sure they're mighty proud about that. Apparently, 32.8% of Mexicans are considered obese. Diabetes and heart disease are the nation's top two causes of death. And some Mexicans are fighting back with diet. Some activists are promoting a return to the traditional Mexican diet as a way to combat obesity. And I have to say, it's hard to imagine that corn, bean, and chilies would be a major source of trouble, but Mexican food does, does have a lot of fat in it. That does not appear to be the culprit here. 
Uh, it's believed that much of the problem is what Mexicans drink, which is an average of 46 gallons of soda a year per person. Now compare the, compare that to uh, the world's second fattest nation, America. We only drink th- we only drink 31 gallons of, of soda per year. Wait a minute, 31 gallons per person per year? A gallon of soda every 11 or 12 days? That's for Americans? That's a scary number. Final medical item. Article from the New York Times this week notes that the push to sell testosterone gels is troubling doctors. It's certainly been troubling this doctor, and I've been happy to tell you about it, but I'm glad everybody else is coming on board now. Under the Times, a barrage of advertising targets older men. Have you noticed a recent deterioration of your ability to play sports? Do you have a decrease in sex drive? Do you have a lack of energy? If so, the ads warn that you should talk to your doctor about whether you have low T. Apparently last year, drug makers in the U.S. spent $3.4 billion on advertising directly to consumers. It's noted in the piece that in the view of many physicians, low T is in large part an invented condition. That said, sales of prescribed testosterone gels that are absorbed to the skin generated over $2 billion in American sales last year, a number that's expected to more than double by 2017. Under the Times, once a niche treatment for people suffering from hormonal deficiencies caused by medical problems like endocrine tumors or the disruptive effects of chemotherapy, the prescription gels are increasingly being sold as lifestyle products to raise dipping levels of the male sex hormone as men age. This is in general a bad idea, my dear listener. If you truly have documented low testosterone levels, it might make some sense for you to consider taking these gels, but they are not something everybody should be on, and that's for sure. The piece quotes Dr. Eric Topol, a cardiologist and chief academic officer at Scripps Health in San Diego, who's alarmed by the high percentage of patients he sees who use the roll-on prescription products achieving testosterone levels he described as ridiculously high. Dr. Topol says these medicines come with a risk of coronary artery disease. He added the other side effects include an enlarged prostate. Peace quotes another doctor saying that low testosterone is rarely the main cause of erectile dysfunction. I'd like to augment that. Low testosterone is almost never the cause of erectile dysfunction. But these ads certainly do imply that your sex life is going to get a lot better if you treat your, quote, low T, unquote. If your libido has vanished, it might be worth talking to your doctor about getting a level checked. Uh, I, I got no problem with that one. Of course, I would add that the opinion that low libido is a possible reason for checking <laughs> your testosterone levels is an opinion that is not necessarily that of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. I, I, although I do sometimes think I need to quit pushing the envelope on these disclaimers. All right, let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. We got plenty more fun. Don't, don't go away. <laughs> 